Would you turn your Bible with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6? And again, we're coming to the very last section of the letter of 1 Timothy. As I have studied, as I was sharing this with the, with the men yesterday, as we have studied 1 Timothy together, you think you know a book Especially if you've been through seminary, you think you know a book before you start studying it, and then when you begin to study it, you're like, wow, there is way more in this book than what I ever anticipated. And I have to say that, that I'm not the same person. I'm a different person in the things that I think and I hope in my character, a little bit at least, since 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1. I hope you're different too. And that's the point of God's Word. That's why we gather here, right? That we would receive God's Word and submit ourselves to the authority of Christ and that He by His Spirit would change us so that as each section of God's Word washes over our soul, we're changed. We're changed, at least in what we think. And Lord willing, in how we act and how we speak as, as, as well. Well, would you stand with me this morning, and this is the last two verses of the letter of 1 Timothy, and let's read it together in unison, and then I'll ask the Lord to bless our time of study this morning. Let's read this together in unison. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we want to tell you how grateful we are to you for, through your Spirit, breathing this letter through the Apostle Paul and onto the page so that we could receive it today. It's your breath. It's your living, active word piercing us deeply into the heart, to the deepest part of our existence, our soul. It discerns us. This word knows us better than we know ourselves. And may we trust it this morning. We want to thank you for your mercy, your merciful kindness and love you've poured out for us in the person of Christ, especially on the cross, taking our guilt, absorbing our punishment. And because of that great mercy, let us be able by your grace to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable, And may we worship you in this service and in our lives from day to day. May we not be conformed to the world, but may we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Father, we ask you this morning in these two verses that you would renew our minds, that you would change the way we think. You would give us light, clarity, understanding, conviction, confidence, and that we would present ourselves to you as that living sacrifice. And may we demonstrate through our lives, through our words, what is your will. And for your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I want to remind you again the the point of this letter, the key verses that give us a clear understanding of, of what this letter is all about are 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. Would you look there with me for a moment again? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a Bible under the chair in front of you, and you're welcome to use that and turn in the text with us as well. 1 Timothy 3, 14 says, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, whom he sent to the Ephesian church to correct the church, to correct the church doctrinally, to correct the church practically in how they were conducting themselves. And he writes, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, if I can't get there as soon as I want to, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's another name for the church. The household of God. We're God's family. And it's the church of the living God, he calls us. A pillar and buttress of the truth. That's, those, are, those are titles for the church and words that explain the function of the church in the world. We're those who hold fast the truth. We've been entrusted by God, as we're going to talk about today, we've been entrusted by God to preserve the purity of the apostolic teaching, the gospel. And then we're to hold it high, to proclaim it, to pass it on to the next generation. And he gives a wonderful confession of faith here. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed Angels proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the, that's, the, that's the gospel right there. That's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this whole letter of 1 Timothy is all about how a church ought to behave in their, in their role in the church, in, in the world. And so Timothy, uh, or Paul, ends this book so fittingly because he brings us back really to where we started the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy in the very beginning to make sure that the message of the church was sound, that it was in unity with what he taught. And here we are again in these verses where the Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to be faithful, to keep the gospel pure. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Have you ever been entrusted with something that belonged to someone else? Maybe someone asked you to take care of their pet or a house or a vehicle or a child and think about the responsibility that has been given to you in that because you don't want to return what has been entrusted to you altered in any way, especially a child, right? I wonder if anyone here has been entrusted with a pet and had to return the pet dead or something like that. That would be a nightmare, right, <laughs> to the person who entrusted that to you. Maybe you have, over the years, put something in a safety deposit box. I remember as a child uh, going with my mother to Midlothian State Bank and going in that room with all these little drawers and being shown some things that were valuable. Do you have a safety deposit box? And you put something, maybe some jewelry, maybe some documents, maybe something that, again, you don't want changed in any way, something you don't want ruined, something you don't want taken away or altered. You put it in that deposit box or safe because you want to keep it in perfect condition. Why? Very often because you want to be in the same condition that you've received it and pass it on to your children in that way as well because it's precious to you. And those to whom you are giving that valuable, they are precious to you also. Dear ones, listen, this morning, you have been entrusted with something far more valuable than you could ever put into a safety deposit box. You have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses this word, the deposit entrusted to you. And you must keep the gospel completely intact. I wonder if you realize that that is your role in the world as the church of Jesus Christ. You have been given the solemn task of safeguarding the gospel so that you can pass it on the next generation in perfect condition. That's the goal. That's, that's the role. That's the goal of the New Testament church as they labor together. And this is the task that Paul is closing his letter with as he writes to Timothy. I want to draw your attention to the main idea of these two verses, and it's simply the command that Paul gives to Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. You see it right there in the first sentence. 
As we look at this, these two verses, I want you to notice the sentences. The verse divisions are a little bit misleading, but look at the sentences. The first sentence ends here, right? O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The second sentence, avoid the irreverent babble and and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by it, By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. End of sentence. And then there's a third sentence. Grace be with you. Those three sentences are our three points this morning. But before we look at those three points and and dig into the meat of the text, I want us to just take a, a few moments to look at that first sentence carefully. This is the main command. This is the main idea. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you. Let's try to get some of the weight of that charge. First, I want you to notice that that is a passionate charge. It's not every command that Timothy or that Paul gives where he begins it with that oh. When do you use the word oh? When you're expressing emotion passion, seriousness. Oh, Timothy! You look through the, the writings of the Apostle Paul and you, you, you can find the times where, where Paul would express that emotional interjection. Oh, Timothy. Romans 11.33 is one example. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His, his ways and how His ways are past finding out. Right? He's... he's wrapped up in the glory of God's redemptive work. And he, oh, the depth. Or Galatians 3.1. Oh, Galatians, who has bewitched you to, to leave the Gospel and to follow legalism? Oh, Galatians. We see it in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But as for you, oh, man of God... Paul interjects those emotional, um, word, that emotional letter there when he is filled with passion about what he's saying. To underscore the importance, the intensity, the urgency of this particular command. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. And he uses Timothy's name. It's not every time he uses Timothy's name. You know what Timothy means? Honoring God. Oh, Timothy. Timothy, it's it's a personal charge. It's not just passion, it's personal. And and I hope that each of us will take it that way too. We are to embrace Paul's passion about this. And we are to take this personally. It's not only a corporate responsibility, it's an individual responsibility. Each one of us who are in Christ are called to guard the deposit. It's polemical. What do I mean by that? Well, it's going to require conflict. It will require conflict. He says, guard the deposit. When you use the word guard, what are you implying? That there is a threat, right? And there is, and that's what he's going to talk about. And he has talked about that throughout the letter. There is a threat to the purity of the gospel. Therefore, those to whom the gospel has been entrusted must guard it. We must keep watch over it, protect it from being diluted or distorted or destroyed or dispensed with. We must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, like Jude in verse 3 tells us. The apostles took this extremely seriously. They understood that Christ had ascended. They understand that He had given His revelation. We understand that even more so today. There's not any more books coming to us. This is it. The Gospel has been given. It's been passed down to us. We have it. Are we going to lose it? Are we going to distort it? Are we going to dispense with it? It must be guarded. That must be the primary passion of our lives. And this this charge is not only a passionate and personal and polemical, but it's also profound. And the reason I use the word profound is because the Gospel, Paul says, has been entrusted to us it's the deposit entrusted. It was, this, this is God's possession. This is the possession of Jesus Christ. And He... Think about what the Gospel is. 
It is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God came to earth, took on human nature, and did these amazing acts, works to save sinners from our, uh, from our sin. And that's the message. Are we going to just pretend as if it's unimportant? Or if God didn't deliver, God didn't just deliver the words to us, He actually delivered the actions of the gospel. He accomplished them and said, here, this is for you. Now keep it. Keep it pure. Pass it on. Proclaim it. It's weighty. It's sobering. The gospel is not ours to tamper with or change or to dispense with or to use however we want. It is the deposit from God. It's extremely valuable. It's been entrusted to us. And so the main command is guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now what this text answers is how. That's the question. How do we do that? How do we guard the gospel? How do we guard the deposit entrusted to us? Number one, be devoted to, the go- to gospel truth. Now this is this point isn't explicit in these verses. I am drawing it out implicitly and from the context of the letter. Guard the deposit implies that you are devoted to it, first and foremost. That you know what it is. That you have it in your possession. That, it, that you have been given to it in your mind, in your life, in your heart, and that you, you are familiar with this and are devoted and love it and believe it and study it and honor it. And I think so it's legitimately implied in this command laid out and laid out through the letter of Paul to Timothy. You can't defend what you are not first devoted to, right? Well, why would you? If it's not precious to you, if it's not your possession, why would you be devoted to it? Why would you defend it? You cannot defend the gospel against error unless you're first personally devoted to it. Be devoted to the gospel with your mind, your words, your life. I want you to to notice the Apostle Paul's call to gospel devotion all through this letter. Look back with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. I just want to take a few moments and look through the, the letter that we've studied already and catch Paul's commitment to the gospel. Verse 5, chapter 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul has commissioned Timothy to correct this church doctrinally. They were teaching a gospel that did not save. And he says, Our charge is different. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul exhorts Timothy to be devoted to the truth, to love, to a pure conscience. And what he means by a pure conscience, you can note this, whenever the Apostle Paul talks about a pure conscience throughout these letters, he's talking about the life that results from gospel commitment. If you say you believe this, then you're going to have a life that is pure, and your conscience will bear witness to that. Does that make sense? Truth in life. In all of Timothy's ministerial duties, he is to be devoted to these things. Truth, love, pure conscience, and a sincere faith. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 10 and 11. Paul is talking about, he's explaining to Timothy and we'll look back at this in a, in a, later on in the message, but he's explaining to Timothy how to rightly use the law in preparation for receiving the gospel. And he says, verse 10, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine in accordance with the what? The gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So even the law that is presented for Timothy to be committed to, even that law is shaped by the gospel. Anything that violates that is a violation of the gospel. Paul exhorts Timothy to be devoted to sound doctrine. 
the entrusted treasure because Timothy must understand lawlessness is anything that violates sound doctrine, the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 and through 19, and we'll read this in entirety later, but the Apostle Paul gives his own testimony of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I have the foremost. And Paul exhorts Timothy, make sure your message is right. And he says, here's how the message has taken over my life. Here's how God's grace and gospel has changed me. Here's the message that we must be proclaiming. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to what? Come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Even when the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy about the priority of prayer in the church, he is telling Timothy that they must pray so that the gospel would be spread and that even unbelieving leaders of the, 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 the society would embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that as we pray, there's only one person through whom we pray, Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between God and men. So the gospel informs how even we come to prayer as Paul instructs Timothy. Look at chapter 3, verses, verse 2, first of all. Notice that those who oversee the church must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and the unique gifting of that one is to be what? Able to teach. Why? Because it's the unique role of the leader of the church to be able to continue to teach the gospel, sound doctrine to those who are part of the body of Christ. Notice also how closely the gospel informs the life of the church, especially its leaders. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. See, that's important because the reason why church leadership must have godly character is because their life is going to reflect the, the credibility of the gospel. That was constantly Paul's concern. Let your life demonstrate the truth and the power of the gospel. Every, all through this letter, it's a constant commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even deacons, notice in verse 9, they must hold the what? The mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Again, their doctrine must be right, and the life that results must be fitting with the gospel. A clear conscience, right? A life that does not violate the conscience. So important to the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in what? The faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the apostolic doctrine. The faith. The gospel. This is, a, this is a constant commitment for the Apostle Paul. Notice, again, we looked at the very beginning of the message. Verses 15 and 16. There, we are called the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar, those who hold high the gospel. The buttress, those who hold fast the gospel and, and don't let it slip, slide, or be destroyed. And then he gives a statement of the gospel in verse 16. Paul's constant commitment is to the gospel. He calls Timothy to the same. Notice in chapter 4, all from verses 16 all the way through, verse, or verse, I'm sorry, verse 6 all the way through 16, the Apostle Paul is continually calling Timothy to be devoted to, to, to the gospel, to true doctrine. If you put these things, verse 6, before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ being trained or actually nourished up in what? The words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. And, and the whole rest of the text calls Timothy 
to a life of gospel purity and holy living. Notice verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. That's how you live. And on what? The teaching. That's the gospel. Look at it again in uh, chapter 5 now, verses 7 and 8. Even the way the body of Christ provides for their own families is a reflection of the gospel truth. Look at it, verses 7 and 8. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a profound statement. Paul commands the people of God to honor and shepherd the true widows who are part of their physical and spiritual family because to neglect this is tantamount to denying the gospel. Paul continually calls the people of God to live godly lives out of personal devotion to the gospel, its power in their lives, its reputation in the world. Who's going to believe the gospel we speak unless our lives reflect the changing power of the gospel? This is Paul's constant commitment through this letter. And then chapter 6 and verse 1, same thing. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the what? The teaching may not be reviled. How slaves were to live their lives under their masters, it was a reflection of the gospel. And then in, in chapter 6, verses 2 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, Paul exhorts Timothy to be devoted to the Word, the truth, the Gospel. You can see it continually. Teach and urge these things, he says in verse 2. Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Verse 12, fight the good fight of what? The faith. Be devoted to the Gospel. That's the idea. 13 and 14, I charge you in the presence of God, Make the good confession. Keep the commandment unstained and free. That's all different ways of talking about devotion to the gospel in how we think, how we speak it, and how it changes our lives and how we, we give a reflection of the gospel. The gospel is the treasure that we must guard. And it's such a precious treasure because by it, listen, here's why it's so precious and so important. We, by it, we come to possess eternal life and eternal existence in the love of God. Listen, dear ones, to lose the gospel is to lose eternal life. If you don't have the gospel, how can you find the way of forgiveness with God? The gospel is a precious treasure. You think about it, like Jeremy Hensley, draw our attention to the believers in Mali today. Why are there even believers in Mali? Why are they staying there? Why don't they get out? Well, maybe they can't sometimes, but some probably can. But why do, they, why do they stay? Because earthly life isn't as precious as eternal life. They're, they're treasuring the gospel. Why would somebody give up their life and live in a country like that? Isn't it for the sake of the gospel? This world is, is such a short life. right? It's going to be gone. It's going to be burned up. It's it's over before we know it, and then eternity. And the only way to get from this life into the next with God and enjoy His eternal life and love is the gospel. And that's why it's precious. That's why we must be devoted to it. Be devoted to the gospel with your mind, your words, your life. The only person who will be able to guard the gospel and defend it is the one who's personally devoted to it. Main idea, guard the gospel entrusted to you. How is this gospel to be guarded? First, by being devoted to it, but secondly this morning then, by avoiding false knowledge. Those things that pretend to be the gospel. Look at the second sentence. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I want you to notice an important grammatical connection in verse 20. The main command we already know is found in verse 20. Guard. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. But
But that command is, is modified by this word avoid. The way that this translation lays it out, I don't know if anybody has a different translation that, that renders that word differently, but it, it seems like two separate commands. But really, avoid is, for you uh, grammar geeks out there, it's a participle. So it's guard the gospel. How? By avoiding. By avoiding the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is an important answer to how we guard the gospel. Guard the deposit by avoiding. If you're going to guard the gospel, there will be some things that you will have to be avoiding passionately, persistently. This this avoiding is is an ongoing thing. It's not one time and done. It's constant. That which is called knowledge is what we are to avoid. That which is falsely called knowledge. There there, There are many religious groups in the world, yes? Many. Some claim the title Christian. Others do not. All of them claim to have knowledge, some knowledge that is necessary for entrance into another existence that is pleasant or heaven, the afterlife, however you want to say it. There's knowledge that is gained. It's it's called knowledge. You've got to know this and you've got to do this and live this way in order to enter eternal life with joy. And Paul is teaching us here in verse 20 that if the knowledge these groups lay claim to, if the knowledge is not the gospel, if it's something other than the gospel, if it's some perversion of the gospel, if it's some distortion of the gospel, something in their knowledge that contradicts the gospel, no matter how deep that knowledge may be, no matter how secret and how precious and how attractive the teaching may be, that knowledge is not knowledge, and it does not save. If their teachings are not the gospel, then they cannot lead to eternal life. Therefore, they are falsely called knowledge, right? Falsely called pseudo-knowledge. Only God's Word, only the truth, only what the apostles taught. Only the gospel is the true knowledge that leads to eternal life. That is the declarative message of the entire New Testament. If you have any familiarity with with the New Testament, you will know that Jesus and the apostles came teaching a way to God and that there is no other way. Jesus made that clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him, Jesus said. Or the apostles, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's very narrow, very exclusive, very clear did they teach this. This this isn't foggy in the New Testament at all. Only God's word, the truth, the gospel is the true knowledge that leads to eternal life. And Paul further describes this false knowledge by two additional descriptions. He calls it irreverent babble. You can see that here in the text. What's that? Well, maybe a way that we could relate with it more. In other words, we could say this. It's godless. It's empty. It's chatter. I mean, there you you just... Maybe you shouldn't do this. Neither should I. But sometimes you could just search YouTube and, and listen to what people are saying about how to have real life, how to get into eternity. And what you will hear, by and large, is godless. It's empty. It's chatter. And he calls it, most importantly here, I think, contradictions. That's the key. It's it's ideas that contradict with the gospel. It doesn't line up. It doesn't agree. I mean, there's only one ultimate truth that saves. It's the gospel. If it doesn't line up, if it contradicts, if, if it opposes the truth in any way, it's not, it's, not saving, it's not a saving gospel. And so Paul says, avoid this. Be avoiding this. Avoid the irreverent babble. Avoid those things that contradict the Bible, even if they falsely call themselves knowledge. That higher knowledge that gains us eternal life. 
Now, as you consider these descriptions with me, I have two questions for you. What specific teachings do you think Paul is referring to by these descriptions? And then there's another question that falls out of that then. What teachings are here today around us? In maybe even among us? Right? What teachings are right in front of our, our eyes and, and right in our ears today that would fall into these categories that we must be aware of and be ready to avoid as we guard the gospel? What are they? Well, throughout the, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, we can notice some major gospel, I'll call them major gospel competitors that would fall into these categories. Paul clearly addresses at least two major categories of false doctrine that are definitely described by these terms in verse 20. What are they? And there's, there's several that we could talk about, but let's just talk about the ones this morning because we don't, have, we don't have time to talk about all of them. Let's talk about the two that Paul deals with head-on in this letter. The first one is legalism. What is, what is legalism? Well, if I could give you a, a specific definition, I would say this, a simple definition. Was, it would be this. Thinking that the law, legalism, any actions of the law, obedience to the law, has the ability to give me favor with God for salvation, to gain it or keep it. That's legalism. If I take any activities that the New Testament or the Old Testament, whatever, commands us to do, and I say, I have to do these things in order to earn favor with God, that's legalism. That's contrary to the gospel. That's contradicting the gospel. Yes, I may believe in Christ and His saving work, but if I can add to Christ, I've got to do these things in order to earn favor with God. That's legalism. That is a gospel that doesn't save, and yet it is rampant in the Christian church today. Paul addresses this head on, for example, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 11. Notice what he says. Specifically, in verse 3, charge, right in the middle, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What different doctrine are you talking about, Paul? Now look down to verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, sound doctrine, have wandered into vain discussion, empty chatter, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There were some teachers in Ephesus who were teaching the law in an unlawful way. Look at verse 8. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law was not laid down for, ju- for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and so on. And what Paul is teaching there in a nutshell is that the purpose of the law is not to make sinners right before God. It cannot do that. Paul spilled so much ink over that. The law can't make people righteous before God because we as sinful people cannot keep the law. If we're going to earn righteousness before God, we would have to keep the whole law all the time. In our, not just with our hands, our words, but in our hearts. And there's only one person that could ever do that, and that's Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. But these folks were teaching that people could be made righteous by the law, and Paul says, no way. No way. The law merely points us to Him who makes us righteous, Him who declares us righteous by His own righteousness. That's legalism being addressed. Look again, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Same, same doctrinal issue here. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now notice, notice that men were teaching doctrine that was deceitful and demonic. What is the doctrine they were teaching? Verse 3, 
who forbid marriage require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Listen, dear ones, listen. Are there any doctrinal systems today that teach that if we hold marriage from ourselves, it earns favor with God? Yes. Are there any doctrinal systems that teach if we hold ourselves back from eating certain foods and so on, all these, keeping all these rules, that it, that it, 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 it adds to Christ's work and keeps us in grace with God? Do you know what that is? That's legalism. And it's a gospel that cannot save. And there are so many who are entrapped in that false gospel that the Apostle Paul addresses so clearly right here. We're called to guard the gospel by avoiding these things. The second doctrinal issue that the Apostle Paul addresses so clearly is the prosperity gospel. Look at chapter 6, again the last chapter here, and verses 3 through 10. He addresses the prosperity gospel. Look at verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. Did you hear that before? Different doctrine. He said that in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 3. Now here it is again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, something that contradicts with the gospel and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that person who teaches that is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy and slander and dissension and evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are, what? Depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, what is the doctrine that they teach? Next phrase. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They take all the forms of godliness, the message of godliness, the behaviors of godliness, the worship of God, in godliness, and they say, we can do this and become wealthy by it. That's the prosperity gospel. If you, if you receive Jesus Christ, He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. The gospel becomes a mean for you, means for, by which you can become rich. Christ becomes the slave of you so that you can become rich. And you can become healthy and prosperous. And Paul said that's a different doctrine. Now again, why is it so important to avoid such false teaching as legalism and the prosperity gospel? And the simple, simple answer is this. It contradicts the gospel. And it's clearly condemned in Scripture as being untrue. But more specifically, listen, because these teachings do not honor Christ. And secondly, because they do not save men and women and boys and girls. They don't save sinners. Legalism insults the sufficiency of Christ. If I need to be good enough for God, then what was the purpose of Christ's righteousness? Isn't His righteousness sufficient? Or do I have to add to it? Well, isn't the cross of Christ sufficient? Or do I have to somehow appease God with so many actions? Isn't the cross sufficient to remove guilt and punishment? Isn't His righteousness sufficient to declare me righteous before God? Anything that we take and add to it, no matter how small the law may be, anything that we take and add to Christ is an assault to the sufficiency of Christ. And isn't Christ sufficient to keep me saved? Isn't Christ sufficient to bring me into heaven by His life and death and burial and resurrection and His intercession and His return? This is so important for us to understand. These doctrines insult the sufficiency of Christ. The prosperity gospel insults the sovereignty of Christ. Am I the servant of Christ? Or is He my servant for my own ends and my own worldly desires? No, He saves me and I'm bought with a price and therefore I live to glorify God, my Father in heaven. These teachings do not save men. Notice, those who profess such knowledge have swerved from the faith. 
They've missed the mark of truth. They've wandered from the faith. They've wandered away from the gospel. They've missed it. They've missed saving knowledge of God's word. Therefore, they cannot inherit eternal life with God. And look what Paul says about the source of legalism. We already noticed it in chapter 4. Where does legalism come from? According to chapter 4 in the first five verses, it comes from demons. Paul says it so clearly. Such teachings will not save sinful men from the wrath of God against their sin, but only secure their entrance into the eternal state of the beings who invented such doctrine. And look what Paul says is the end of the prosperity gospel. Notice verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's the end of the prosperity gospel. There's the end of loving money. There's the end of desiring to be rich in the things of this life. These teachings do not save men. And so how should the family of God respond to such teachings and teachers? Guard the gospel entrusted to you. Guard it. Jude writes in Jude verse 3, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend, fight for it, keep it pure, How do we do that? Jude verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's the gospel. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. It's God who keeps us faithful to the gospel. And you know what? We're called to snatch others out of false teaching as well. We're to guard ourselves and to seek to guard others as we keep the gospel pure. Dear ones, if we're going to guard the deposit entrusted to us, then we must be willing to be devoted to the gospel and avoid false knowledge. We must be willing to turn from it ourselves and help others to turn from it as well. So, are you? Are you? Are you passionate about preserving the, the one true apostolic gospel? Or are you one of those professing Christians who leaves the battle to others? Or isn't concerned with what a person or group teaches as long as they have Jesus in their message. There's so much of that in our community, dear ones. As long as you've got Jesus, you're okay. And they're, and they're lumping together all kinds of contradicting teaching about what the gospel is. Just say Jesus and you're good to go. Wrong. Wrong. What Jesus Is it the Jesus of the Bible? What do we trust in for salvation? Anything? Any Jesus? No. It's this teaching. It's the apostles' teaching. It's the gospel. This is so important for us. Dear ones, the honor of Christ and the salvation of sinners is at stake in the purity of the gospel message. It's like the song said, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. That's that's this message. The sword is the the word of God, the gospel. We We don't hate those who think these things that are contradictory. We love them, but we hate the message, and we hate the one who keeps them captive, right? Guard the gospel. Finally, this morning, we're going to guard the gospel entrusted to us Because not only we do that by not only being devoted to the gospel and avoiding false knowledge, but then finally, and most importantly, last four words. Grace be with you. 
We need that, right? That's, that's the answer. How do we do all this? This is intense. This is a way of life that, that consumes us. It gets us into all kinds of predicaments, doesn't it? Number three, be depending on Christ's grace. Grace be with you. That's Paul's final words. This grace, by implication, is a gift from our Lord Jesus Christ to each blood-bought member of His church. The Apostle Paul typically ended his letters praying that the grace of Christ in which every believer stands would be appropriated and enjoyed by each believer in their pursuit to fulfill the exhortations of his letters. Paul said, Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He says that same phrase, 1 Corinthians 16, 23 and 24, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Galatians 6, 18, Philippians 4, 23, 2 Thessalonians 5, 28. It's like every, nearly every letter that he ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a few letters where he didn't name the Lord Jesus Christ like this one, but it's in all the other ones. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Philemon 1, 25. This grace is undeserved gifts and spiritual provisions from our ascended and reigning Christ that enables us and strengthens us to be devoted to the gospel and defend the gospel until the day we see Christ face to face. That's this grace. I love how Paul, Paul's letters are rich with enabling, strengthening grace. You just do a search on grace and you'll find it to be just a massive theme in the New Testament. But if you narrow it down to what Paul talks about with this strengthening, enabling grace, it's just amazing and so encouraging in, in these commands. Let me read a few of these verses to you. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, what? I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It was God's grace that sustained the Apostle Paul through all that he did in ministry and enabled him to keep the gospel pure and proclaim it effectively. Don't you think God's grace is available to you to do the same? It is. 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. 2 Corinthians 9.8, you know this verse, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me, and God says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Philippians, Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Philippians 1, 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Dear ones, listen to that verse. Take that home with you. Every time you need to confirm the true message of the gospel with someone, or defend it, or even someday in the future go to prison for it, God's grace will be with you to sustain you. 2 Thessalonians 1.12, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. The last one I want to read to you, though there's many more. 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you know this. Apart from the grace of Christ, we would have absolutely no ability to remain faithful to the gospel, let alone be devoted to it, let alone defend it. But since we have the grace of Christ richly supplied to us, we will be kept, we will be sanctified, we will be united in the truth of the gospel. Are you resting in the grace of Christ this morning to enable you to do these? You know, two ways you can tell if you're resting in the grace of God is your recurrence to prayer. If you just 
reach out to do all this on your own and you leave prayer in the dust, you know who you're trusting in? Yourself. But if you go to the Lord in prayer and you, and you have a heart that runs to Him, begging Him to enable you because you know you are unable to proclaim and defend the gospel, then you know you're resting in His grace and He will give it. Another way you can know is if you rely on your own words or you turn to the words of Scripture to, to defend the gospel to someone or to your, your own heart. And it's, it's no good just spouting to someone. Open the Scriptures to them. Read the Scriptures. Show them from the Word of God. It's that Word that is living and active, not ours. Dear ones, Christ will supply each of you who are His children with this same grace so that you too may be strong to guard the gospel entrusted to you. As we close our service this morning with singing and prayer, I want to ask one final question. If we work backwards through this outline, it would go something like this. Without the grace of God, we would never be able to avoid false knowledge and defend the gospel. And you will never be able to defend the gospel unless you are first devoted to the gospel. But you will never be able to defend or be devoted to the gospel until first of all you have what? Received the gospel for yourself. And you've received it as the absolute truth and the only way of forgiveness and acceptance with God and the way of eternal life. So here's the question. Have you received the gospel today? Have you? Have you received the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the one Paul and the other apostles taught about? Have you received it as the way, the one way of salvation? Have you placed your faith solely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, His righteousness to declare you righteous before God, His death to make you guilt-free and punishment-free before God? His righteousness to bring you to life spiritually and give you eternal life with God forever. Are you trusting, are you trusting in His intercession to keep you? Are you trusting in Christ solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sins and your entrance into the eternal presence of God with joy? Paul said the gospel in this letter. He said, I thank Him, God, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly, who was Paul? A blasphemer? A persecutor? An insolent opponent? But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with me for the, with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Is that your confession? Do you know you're a sinful human being like the rest of us? Do you know you deserve the wrath of God because of your sin? Because that is an eternal offense against our Heavenly Father? And do you know that Christ can set you free from all of that? But Christ alone, don't add anything to Him. He will not save those who add anything to His work. His work is sufficient. He must receive all the glory. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only one through whom we pray. Only one through whom we are saved. There's only one way. Is that your confession? And he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If your confession is aligned with Paul's and you have received Christ and are resting in him, then you will have eternal life. You have eternal life with God. You are born of God. You are forgiven. It's complete. But if not, or if you're confused, and if you have questions about this, and you want eternal life with God, you want forgiveness, you want freedom from sin, and you want righteousness with God, then please don't leave today without asking about it. Come up with to me or someone else here and, and ask them, I want to understand more about the deposit. 
I want to know the gospel. I want to rest in Christ. I pray that is your heart today. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have been entrusted such a precious treasure in the gospel. You have given it to us. And we have seen it and heard it throughout this letter. But I pray that our study in the letter of 1 Timothy would not pass from our minds like another, another course, another college course, another high school course, another school course, but it, it, that it would live in us, change us, and motivate us to continue to come to Christ, rest in Him, rest in His grace, love the truth, and be the pillar and buttress of that truth that you have called us to be. We pray that you would enable us for that, for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.